Welcome to the Loveland Libcast, the official podcast of the Loveland Public Library. everyone. I'm Esther. I'm taking over Daniel this week as a guest host of the Loveland Libcast. In honor of National Poetry Month, I was able to speak to two poets, Marge Hahn and Evan Oakley. Up first is my conversation with Marge Hahn. Joining me today is Marge Hahn. She's a freelance editor, writer, and writing teacher, and a 2015 MFA graduate from the Rainier Writing Workshop in Poetry. She has performed and taught at over 100 venues around the country, including public radio and television programs. Her poems have appeared in literary journals, anthologies, art exhibits, and dance performances. To make poetry hospitable, she reads poems to dogs and pairs poems with craft beers, spirits, and coffee, or her YouTube channel. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Esther. Before we get started, I'm interested in your YouTube channel. How long have you been reading on the vlog? I think I started a couple years before the pandemic. And so I would pair other people's poems thematically with the names of beers. You know, beer names are always very fun as language. And I used to pet sit a lot of my friends' dogs. So I started also reading poems to dogs. Again, other people's poems, pairing the poem with the dog's personality or appearance, or I'd find some connection that way. And then I did uh, spirits. And then during the pandemic, because we were in lockdown, and so I couldn't go sit in distilleries and breweries, I started doing it with craft coffee. Nice. Which also has interesting names. But if not, I might even just pair a poem with the location the origin of the coffee, or I just always found some thematic connection. Is it always other writers or do you ever read your own? Always other writers. I have not read my own. (laughs) Yeah. Not yet, I guess. Yeah. Oh, actually, one time I did read my own because it was impromptu and I had access to my own poems on my phone, whatever. Sometimes I have to improvise. Yeah, that sounds fun. So I want to know a little bit about your history with writing poetry When did you begin writing poetry and when was really the turning point for your love of poetry? Yeah, I'll say this. When I was little, like first and second grade, I was writing little books on construction paper, covering with saran wrap, like library books. I love that crinkly sound. And my titles, though I was writing fiction stories, my titles were always alliterative. And I think the Big turning point was 10th grade, Mrs. Velligan, E.E. Cummings. And that is the poet I presented in the recent Poet Laureate Encountering a Poet series. English teachers are everything. I'm ready to cry. My 11th grade English teacher recommended me for a program at something called BOCES in New York State, which is a vocational program for high school students wanting to learn the trades. But they also had another kind of program with specialties like that, I guess. And so my 11th grade English teacher had me go do a poetry writing series at that program at BOCES. We'd get on a bus and go. 
in the second half of the day every Wednesday or something for a while. And then I didn't return to literature until my middle 20s when I was working for caterers and helping load vans with a guy named Kenny Brune. And we would talk about literature, loading these vans and unloading these vans. I got re-enlivened to my love of literature. So yeah, that's, that's how it happened. If it wasn't going to be poetry or writing or literature or, or that wasn't going to be what was enriching your life, did you think in college that it was going to be something else? Esther, no one has ever asked me that question because I've never formulated the answer. There was nothing else, which makes me want to cry because, and I like good tears, right? I was encouraged by my parents and my guidance counselor to go into math engineering because I, I was performing better in math than in English, though hardly, you know. And it wasn't like that was the alternative. That's That wasn't a happy life for me. The beauty of that engineering gig, though, that engineering degree, though, is it got me a math teaching job for a year while a math teacher went on sabbatical in a private school, which didn't require teacher certification. And so my self as a teacher got very clear. I'm pretty sure I'm more a teacher than a writer, if I could, you know, get archetypal. Like, I am a teacher who writes. I don't think I'm a writer who teaches because, well, what else am I going to do? I'm a teacher who writes. Okay, that was that's the other thing, then, teaching. I would have gone into just straight up teaching, but I like teaching on my own, you know, as my own business Yeah. versus in an institution. Yeah, I feel that I'm also a writer. I don't write poetry. I write fiction. And I love teaching and I love teaching in in any kind of way I can really. And I think yeah. sometimes with writing because it is difficult to have that be your income, <laughs> writers sometimes turn to teaching despite not really enjoying it and thinking because it's a way that they can make their art yeah. profitable and I was talking with some friends just last weekend about exactly this, that I unabashedly love teaching and I don't think about teaching as being something that is a necessary evil to pursue writing. I mean, you're thinking about your 11th grade and 10th grade teachers. Those people changed your lives. I mean, and that takes, I think, people that are pretty special and really care about what they're doing and are not doing it for, they think, necessary reasons, but. Yeah. Yeah. I love communities of learning. And when I look at my, the things I've created over my life, my adult life, it's always trying to create communities around learning and usually around literature, but in hybrid ways, which is what the YouTube channel is about. I'm always trying to make connections across things. And I'll say too, Esther, that I've heard myself say more than once recently, I don't have to write. I have to teach. So I improve my writing so that I can be a better teacher for folks wanting to improve their writing. It is my my driver right now, which is alarming on one hand, because I do have ambition as a writer, and it's not my current driver. Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. And I think being a writer is complicated because it is so much about experience and living, and, and it is not devoid of 
all the other things that we do as humans that give us value in our lives. I mean, it is completely dependent on that. Well, maybe this is a good way for us to talk a little bit about your recent workshop with the Love and Poet Laureate program and, and the library. How did that experience go? What was exciting about that or enriching about that as a poet and as a teacher? The engagement was really fabulous. It was nice to be out again, too, post-pandemic and being in my community. And I, I'll say I fell in love with the Northern Colorado poetry community since the pandemic. I felt like I really belonged in it, you know. And I love getting to know people through their learning and their writing. It's so illuminating whenever I read a friend or, or acquaintance's writing. Oh, that is what what makes you you. And it is because yeah. you notice those things that I've never noticed, or you see that in this way, or think about it this way, you know. Yeah. I got to experience their creative minds, their intellectual minds, their childish excitement minds. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about E. Cummings and how that poet, I mean, just because you brought up that poet at the start as being a kind of turning point for you and you seem to be turning again to that artist. So I'll answer it this way because it was a realization that I think it's true for all artists in their development that we start with self-expression and move to how are we choreographing our medium as a vehicle for our expression. And there was a switch sometime in my, I would say probably two years ago, actually, when working with the material to elicit my content became dominant. I stopped being driven to the page by how I feel, think, existential grapplings. Well, because you work it out in therapy, you know, and then what else is there? So I had to have form, language, elicit what I didn't know I wanted to work out on the page or explore on the page or refresh on the page. And so when I was preparing for the E. Cummings presentation, I realized that I've always been drawn to materiality. E. Cummings was using language as material and form like really no one else. And I was enchanted by that then, but I didn't know. And now I know that I must have had an inkling that that's what excites me about being a maker of poems. I love that uh, choreographing your medium and thinking of the making of the poetry itself as being inextricable from the act of creating. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, that's so not obvious, but that's your feelings have to be choreographed into the medium or your understanding of the world or what you want to write about. But that's Mm -hmm. just very beautifully said. And I wonder if... That might be a good segue into talking a bit about how are you choreographing your medium? What does your poetry practice look like? And how are you engaging with that? Yeah, this is the hard question to answer, Esther, because I'm not really practicing my poetry right now. And for a long time, I was writing poetic, lyrical prose vignettes, thinking I was going to shape them into a memoir, an episodic memoir. I think it's my better writing, to be honest. But the last handful of years, I, I'm not the same person. So I'm in a, in a transition around who I am as a woman, human, and then therefore a writer. Like I'm not interested in what I was 
interested in pre-pandemic and pre, well, you know, pre the last seven years. So what I'm scheming right now is that an access to my writing is going to be through the visual arts. I'm noticing that I love going to art exhibits the most. And so I'm a decent collagist. I think I need to get nonverbal to get verbal again. And that's hybridy. You know, I feel like post-pandemic, a lot of reinventions being called for in ourselves and in our institutions. And I'm kind of hoping that in poetry land, and it's happening that there's more ways to deliver poetry. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm going to incorporate words in collages. I don't know, to be honest. Something else with video, who knows? But something's really wanting to happen different. What you're experiencing, it sounds like it very much relates to what you're talking about, about choreographing your medium and that that medium can change and that medium can flex and it is maybe dependent on what the driving emotion is and maybe the driving emotion needs to be seen as collage or seen as or can best be expressed as hybrid or or a video essay or I just say it aligns with what I care about which is I care about expanding the audience for literature for poetry which is what that YouTube channel yeah. is about too how do I get you to give poetry a chance that's such a teacher thought. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think people are very afraid of poetry. How do we get people to engage with something that they think is scary or something that they think is smarter than them or over their heads or that they'll never understand? And I was recently at a writing workshop just two weekends ago, and one of the sessions was with Kaba Akbar, a young Iranian American poet. And Somebody in the class said something akin to, I'd never understand poetry. I'm not smart enough to understand the meaning of the poem. And he took a moment and said, you know, we don't ask that of other art forms. You know, we can listen to music and appreciate it despite not knowing the lyrics if it's in a different language or despite not knowing how the music is made or put together in a way that maybe a composer might understand, but we can still appreciate it. Or we can look at a painting and maybe not know the full extent of what the artist intended and still really appreciate the painting. And yet with poetry, we have this expectation that there's some secret code that needs to be cracked. If we can't crack it, then we aren't smart enough and don't kind of deserve to read the poem or talk about the poem. And He was just saying, isn't that funny that this is one of the only art forms that we really demand full understanding of for appreciation? Yeah. And when I teach, I I use analogies with how they appreciate a painting. So it's obvious with an abstract painting, you're not trying to figure out what it means per se, Mm -hmm. experiencing it as pure form. And with realist paintings, I assert that we're not running to the painting in the art museum because it's a barn, because of how it's a barn. It's about tranquility or solitude because of how the form is rendered, color, shape, gesture, etc. I wish in high school they would teach students how to receive poetry that way. But language has the added feature of connoting and denoting. Mm -hmm. So we think we're making meaning from 
what the words mean. It's like, no, it's how the words mean. Yeah. The choreography. The choreography. Yep. So let's hear some of your work if you're willing to share. Thank you, Esther. Yeah. So I'm going to share some poems that I wrote during the pandemic. It's interesting to me that we think the pandemic's over and in sort of poetry submission land, poets are talking about how they can't submit pandemic poems anymore as if that subject is over and it's not over, not for me anyway, as a resonance and a consequence. So this poem is called Turning 55, the First Year of a Global Pandemic, an elegy with middies, bras, heels, hoops, and lipstick. Dresses wilt in the closet, somewhere something the color of absence blooms wherever you breathe. Wherever you breathe, something seeds forgiveness. Summer, fall, winter, sun, your knees melt and melt. Hems must drop to kiss them and return a lusty spring. Listen, the rain filling satiny cups isn't rain. The grass under your skin isn't a field or a grave. A garden roots the hour, uproots the day. Step here, step there. Squeeze your piggies into their tapered pens and go to the goddamn market. Your hips haven't forgotten their sway sway. Your ears, the silver whispers in a velvet lined box. Your mouth, well, it's just a mouth. Stain it the color of beetroot and leave its ghost wherever something puckers. This poem I wrote grappling with my family's political orientation. On the first anniversary of an insurrection, an elegy with crochet hook. Sometimes you don't know if you're having a feeling, so you put on your sneaks and you walk. Walking requires a special shoelace knot because looping around Lake Sherwood, looping side to side across the middle of the road, minding everyone's breathing zone, pounding left, right, left, right, can, when the world is spiraling, trace a child back to the mother. First stitch, the chain stitch, she taught you at the kitchen table, yarn over, pull through, yarn over, pull through, looping, loose to see daylight through, looping to be a blanket. Does everything begin in a hand? Slip not to slide on an inline hook you clutch like a knife. No, a spoon. Nothing's a sign or everything is. The melanocytic nevus marking your cheek, another spiky corona misting to breathe. You're alive, dear, 29 million minutes and counting. Asking for a penny on a subway train is all it takes for the guiltiest to pull change from a pocket and another and another gives. George Eastman's Oregon woke George up at 7.30 sharp, its brass pipes whistling a hypnopompic frame. Pull a string, push a button. You keep changing the subject. Where's your mother? Asleep in her chair, hook in hand. Last skein, raveling. 
This poem is called Friday Night at Sprouts, the Day COVID-Related Deaths Surpassed 2 Million Globally. You didn't expect to find each other here, near the fresh ginger by the front entrance, place to feed an impulse, the shopper's faith in serendipity. This is just what I needed. One of you spills into the bowl between the other's neck and shoulder. Months since haircuts and highlights, months since happy hours, cowgirl boots and lipstick, months since distance came between us all, and today is the day you didn't say, may I, or is it okay if I, gravity's blip in this new continuum, you and you so close to the door, it sensed your rush to wrap all limbs around what's breathing here, and now one body rooted, waters the ground and the glass leaves slide as if applauding. Thank you so much for sharing. Those poems really relate a lot to what Rosemary and I were talking about, which is just how we are expected as people to hold everything at once. We are expected to shove our piggies into tapered pens and go out and be women or be citizens and go grocery shopping and doing all these, you know, seemingly mundane and, and important things while great tragedy is happening all around us or personal tragedy is happening. Just as people, we are asked to be everything all at once and poetry as a way of looking at those juxtapositions of experiencing everything at the same time and that being beautiful and also very tragic and hard and all the things that make us people. Yeah. Yeah. And Esther, it's difficult to say anything that sounds like, oh, there was an upside to the pandemic. But as a poet, and maybe, and I hope for any human, one upside, quote, quote, is that, that I got to re-experience life, you yeah. know, and not saying anything no one hasn't said that taking for granted and that a poem is designed to renew our experience whether it's our experience as a period in the content or our experience of language which is what a poem is too it's a side door into a subject right it's saying the unsayable yeah i mean re-examining not only things that we take for granted like being with our families or how much time we're away from our families, things like that. But also places of comfort suddenly became places of terror, like a grocery store. A grocery store was suddenly very frightening. And now we were all forced to reexamine things that we did without thinking as having a whole new set of contextual information surrounding it. And now, okay, so now how do I see both the simple beauty and grocery shopping and, and also the terror in that and the, the new reality. Yeah. And just to add to the other experience, which was very personal, Esther, is that I did turn 55 during the global pandemic. And so how I experience myself as a woman in this culture now, I can't figure out if who has changed is simply a woman who moved from being visible to being invisible or, and it's probably an and, a woman who, like all of us, survived seven years of major uncertainty and collective trauma. So my experience of myself as a woman is, I don't, I, I see, I don't have words for it. 
Yeah. But I, I know that I am not the same woman for lots of reasons. And then how do you, relating back to your conversation earlier about how do you then take that change and that disruption and maybe it can no longer be contained by the same art form? That's it. What does this woman want to say and how does she want to say it? And whom does she want to say it to and for, you know? Yeah. In a way, that's kind of exciting. It is. Getting it to, is. <laughs> you know, discover similar to maybe discovering poetry for the first time, or at least I don't mean want to put words in your mouth, but when I discovered writing, I mean, that was a very enlivening, yeah. life-changing thing. And you get to do that in a new way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Marge, for chatting with me. Before we go, is there anywhere that you would like me to direct people if they want to follow up with you, maybe the YouTube channel, if they want to just read some of your work or follow your career yes. or any of your further workshops and teaching and that type Thank of thing? you. Yeah. So my website is M-A-R-J-H-A-H-N-E.com, my name.com. There is a webinars tab. And the YouTube channel is just my name, Marge Hahn, M-A-R-J-H-A-H-N-E. Great. Well, I will yeah. put all of those links in the show notes for this episode so listeners can follow those and follow you. Thank you, Esther. You're delightful. This was really fun. And I love learning about you as a writer and a woman. Oh, likewise. Evan Oakley is a poet and has published in various literary journals, including Plowshares and the CEA Critic. He has received a Colorado Council of the Arts Award for Poetry, the Dana Prize for Poetry, and has received a Lannan Foundation Fellowship. He is chair of the English Literature Communications Department at Ames Community College, where he has taught for three decades. He is an inveterate poetry scene hanger-on and lives in Windsor, Colorado, with his teenager Grayson and his dog Riley, who's also a teenager. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thank you. Why don't you tell me just a little bit about your background in poetry? When did you first start writing poetry, and how did it come to take on such an importance in your life? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I was um, a writer from a young age. I uh, lost my hearing when I was 12, and I lived in the country. And the result was that I became a reader and a writer because this was back in the Middle Ages when we did not have the internet. So reading was where it was at. And I began to write. I don't know at what point I began to be drawn to poetry. But I do know when I uh, was in my college years, I actually took a creative writing workshop from a Loveland teacher, Veronica Patterson in the upstairs of the old Loveland Museum Gallery. And through the years, I maintained that connection. She put me in contact with a famous poet named Carolyn Forche, whose a workshop I took. And anyway, long story short, I ended up back uh, in the Washington, D.C. area at George Mason University pursuing an MFA in poetry. And so that's how that developed. Did you ever write any other genre, fiction or nonfiction, or was it really straight to poetry in terms of writing? Yes, I wrote fiction pieces, not much nonfiction. I began with fiction. The poetry is a more elevated game. And as my, as my learning and experience increased, I gravitated that way. 
Can you think of some meaningful advice about poetry or creative writing that sticks out? Well, a favorite quote of mine that I tell writers is one by Mark Twain. Never trust anyone who will belittle your ambitions. And small people do that. But the truly great people make you feel that you too can be great. I paraphrase that a little bit, but that's essentially it. And luckily in my life, I ran into some truly great people who nurtured that feeling that I could also be successful. Yeah, and that's important in any, I think, any creative pursuit. Of course, that's important in all pursuits, but creative pursuits that are perhaps the path is not immediately clear. You do this, then you do that, then you do that, and then you are a surgeon or whatever, majorly simplifying that. But creative pursuits, it's sort of a leap of faith constantly every day to keep doing this. That's true. You're taking a gamble in this society. Yeah. You have to be better than everybody else, to put it bluntly. You have to keep your life and limb together. You got to maintain a job and somehow maintain your creative life at the same time. Yeah. It's demanding. And so, yes, it is a leap of faith, but it always has been. And many people have been successful despite that. And this is maybe a good transition into teaching. You just held a workshop at the Loveland Public Library and you are a teacher. What excites you about teaching poetry to anyone, but maybe perhaps people that are new to writing poetry? One of the great things about teaching poetry is teaching poetry appreciation. Sure, it's nice when you have a group of people like I had at the Loveland Museum Gallery recently who already know a fair amount about writing and poetry. You can really dig in and and cover a lot of interesting things when you have that. When you have new students, what you're doing is you're trying to wake them up to what poetry actually is. It's poetry appreciation, you might say. And that's okay too, because you're, you're getting to share a lot of marvelous work that these people haven't seen before, didn't know existed, didn't know those kinds of possibilities existed. And to see that that realization uh, wake up in, in their eyes and to, to see their appreciation grow, that's what's exciting about it. And you said showing people what poetry actually is. I'm being a bit, <laughs> this is a hard question and you don't need to have an answer, but what is poetry? <laughs> that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I don't really try to answer that in a in a strict sense, but I I love all genres and all time periods of poetry. I love uh, the contemporary free verse that puzzles so many people. I think it's great, but I also love the sonnets and the villanelles and the sestinas and all the epic poetry of the past. And if there's a thread that connects them all, it would be a heightened sense of language and a surprise in where the work goes. So I guess uh, I will paraphrase Emily Dickinson. You know poetry because it makes the top of your head lift off. As I was asking that question, I was thinking maybe the better question is not what is poetry, but what does poetry do? And that, just like that Dickinson quote, what does poetry do? It makes the top of your head lift off. How does poetry exist 
in the reader. And that's how you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's That's also very wiggly, but. That's a good question. I, I remember after uh, 9-11 and the World Trade Towers came down and the shock that was in public life at that time, it was really interesting to me how I began to see in the New York Times and on in many other media outlets, poems actually were being presented left and right. Nobody was saying, hey, what we need now is ballet. What we need now is contemporary jazz. What we need now is architecture. No. What people were saying, what we need now is poetry. Only poetry seemed to be able to equal the pressure that was coming at us from the outside. That's another way of thinking of what is poetry and what does it do? It's equal to the pressure of life or the beauty of life. Yeah, the beauty of life. Yeah. Wonderfully said. So I would like to hear some of your poetry <laughs> since oh, we've been talking about it. Well, that's a, that, I just set myself up pretty <laughs> You really pretty did. <laughs> this first poem I read is titled Ukraine. A trench, narrow, long and deep, like those used for running water and sewer lines into which the newly dead are being thrown the dead of that very afternoon. Some hammocked in blankets, some in tarps, some in their own coats. Two awkward men toting them to the edge. A woman's leg swings out of the makeshift shroud. Slender, still dressed in nylon and a stylish shoe. And in it goes, with the rest of her, into the shadow below. I look at the floor, at a lamp, at a window. Such diabolical intimacy to see such things, at a remove, in a dream of streaming images, in the common news. I think of her putting it on, its trim ankle strap and buckle the tidy, casual way such things are done. Last of all, the fastening and the standing, looking around and going toward a door into sunlight, distracted, just an instant, thinking, keys, bread, lover, loves. Wherever one goes in such moments, never suspecting the place of arrival. Uh, that was an outward-looking poem, dealing with topical events. This is a more inward poem titled, Simply I Don't Know. Can anyone write about an ex-spouse without incriminating oneself, without telling the tale of a hero who is a fool? Man or woman, each word reveals more than intended. The crowd thins and drifts away with weak smiles. Sure, some people have the good luck to have married a beastly drunk or criminal, and their stories are simple, easily understood, even by the in-laws. But the rest of us are left muttering, incapable of capturing how we were married 
to a human who, who was a real fuck and how we too were mostly human, though occasionally a fuck. It gets confusing how to tell the story fairly yet come off well. Better to not even try. Best to just go quiet when the subject comes up, particularly with people who are politely sober with the stress of judging you. Kindly, of course, like family. Or uncomfortable, because secretly they are on the edge themselves, like the neighbors. Bob's or Meredith's waving from the driveway, smiling stiffly and lurching into a car, ears still red from being screamed at or from screaming like a lunatic at the door. They just slammed. Anyway, it takes a real genius to speak justly about the toxic sisterhood and their queen, your ex-wife. It takes a real saint to write gently about the League of Asshole Gentlemen and their president, your ex-husband. It really is questionable whether it can be done without confessing somehow the damning fact that they were okay. Attractive, actually. Doing pretty well before they met you. At least you thought so, right? After the spin, drafting the revision and trying again, when the take is fully curated, seasoned, true, you feel like you just kicked a dog and the dog was you. Thank you so much for reading those. They're very different poems, but I think what's interesting about hearing them back to back is these things that are private, like the woman putting on her shoes in the morning this in this tidy, casual way, like the kind of private ritual of that, and then what we see of her now. I mean, that poem was very moving. And then the second poem, too, this, like, impossibility of portraying fully your private experience because others have the same private experience, you know? And like, th this disconnect between what is private and what is public. Well, yes, I agree. I mean, you, you no doubt have talked to people from broken relationships, or maybe you experienced it yourself. And it's and it's a remarkably uh, crazy way to reveal yourself and to feel very unsatisfied when you're done. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing those. Are you reading any poetry right now that you would recommend to folks? That's a good question. I am. I've been reading a, a poet named Chesla Milos. He is a Nobel Prize winner, and he moved to the United States and taught in the United States for a while. I don't know how to direct folks to him other than the collected poems of Chesla Milos. We will put a link to that book in the show notes of this episode so people could could check it out from the um, library. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, his collected poems. He's a, he's a profound poet. He uh, experienced the Nazis in Poland and Lithuania when he was young. And after surviving them, he had to endure the occupation of Stalin 
than his troops. So the huge disasters of the 20th century were ones he experienced firsthand, and he writes about them remarkably. Yeah, it's just like what you were saying about the 9-11 poetry and actually your first poem that you read here, that poetry is something that can, it can hold itself or it can be a force against the force of life. It is like a way to talk about very difficult times that the world's experiencing. Well, an anthology that I worked on when I was young was called Against Forgetting. It's about poetry of witness, so to speak. So yeah. that's what that first poem aspired to doing. Yeah. Know. Poetry is beautiful when it goes inward, lyrics of love and loss. Mm -hmm. But I think poetry has the obligation to go outward also and to address war, injustice, oppression, etc. Not to get too corny about it, but it needs to do both. And the poet I just mentioned, Czesław Milos, does both beautifully. Yeah, it's not corny at all. And I think one of the beautiful things about poetry is that it makes you awakened to language in a new way, in ways that other types of writing does not. And we are so desensitized to to language. When you read a poem that works with language in that way, it's doing a similar thing of bringing attention to the horrors of the casual the news program and just seeing these like really devastating I think you said diabolical intimacies in that poem, but devastating images that we're very desensitized to. Poetry is doing that also in language, so it seems like it's a great tool for, it's an important tool for that. Is there anything, you know, if somebody would like to read more of your work or connect more with your poetry career, is there anywhere we, we could direct them? There's the Northern Colorado Poets Center. Okay. I have some work there people can access. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put those links in the show notes. Well, thank you for this opportunity to babble on. Oh, I loved it. Thanks for chatting with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Loveland Libcast. If you'd like to contact us about the podcast, please reach out to Daniel at daniel.tate at cityofloveland.org. That's D-A-N-I-E-L dot T-A-T-E at cityofloveland.org. See you next time.